Lovely to have you here anyway this evening for um, uh, week two of this module on Romans. And whether or not you've done your homework or not, that's uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, we will be on Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And uh, so if you have a Bible to hand, you might like just to get that near to hand and have that available so that you're able to look at that. And as we turn always to the, the word of God, we do so with um, a deliberate uh, consciousness that we need always the illumination and instruction of the, the spirit of God. And so as a corporate enterprise at the outset of our time together this evening, uh, let's just take a moment to bow in prayer and to seek God's blessing upon us. Let's pray. God, our Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ways in which you have been pleased by your Holy Spirit to take up these uh, very ordinary, very different individuals and through them in the mystery of that inspiration to ensure that their words were indeed your words. And we thank you not least for this particular book of the Bible, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, very conscious of the way in which down through history uh, you have used this letter in powerful, powerful ways to change people's lives, to change society's life. And we ask our Father that as we apply ourselves to the study of it again this evening, uh, you'd be doing the same in our lives in such a manner that it, it may be truly transformative, not only in our experience, but in our living as well, that it may be in all regards for your greater praise and glory. And so we'd ask, Father, please, that by your spirit, you would indeed meet with us in your word this evening and grant to us your blessing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we uh, start in on Romans, and uh, if you were here last week, you'll realize that uh, what I was suggesting was the overarching theme was that of salvation. Uh, I, I don't think it's a definitive statement that, but I think it's, it's a helpful way of looking at and thinking about Paul's letter to the Romans. And the way in which it, it divides up is, is, in a sense, not arbitrary on my part. It's not just to fit in eight uh, concluding sessions. Uh, it is very much, I think, how the, the letter does divide up. And I think it's helpful to think of the uh, letter uh, under that overarching theme of God's salvation. And then under these eight headings of which we look at the first this evening. Uh, eight key themes that run through the whole letter. And there, there is a natural and logical order to the sequence in which they come. And, uh, and I hope you'll see that, that uh, the letter to the Romans is not just a random collection of uh, purple passages of Paul that he's, he's put together in a compendium of his uh, thoughts of Apostle Paul, but is a, a very clearly... Uh, carefully argued statement of the gospel and uh, the, the message that God has given to us. And this first um, part of the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, which will form the substance of our thinking this evening, uh, I've simply 
um, called gospel, because it does seem to me that is the essential theme. Uh, gospel, you'll be aware, is the way that the English translates a Greek word that basically means good news, um, something that is announced to us and that is uh, quintessentially good. And uh, as we read through, which is what we'll do just in a moment or two, read through the first 17 verses, uh, you will, I think, be able to see that that is a word that recurs. Um, in the NIV, it actually occurs five times. Uh, in the Greek, it only occurs four times because in the opening couple of verses, um, in fact, verse, yeah, verse two, the, the reference to the gospel, that's just inserted by the translators for the sake of... Um, uh, giving a clarity of meaning but let me let me read verses 1 to 17 just so that you get a flavor of it it is um, all to do with uh, gospel and uh, gospel means good news uh, we do well i suppose at the outset of this letter to ask ourselves um, whether we we have fully appreciated just how good it is and whether the manner in which we live out our lives as follows of the Lord Jesus Christ does indeed uh, manifestly demonstrate uh, that it is essentially good news. Uh, are you good news in your own neighborhood? Are you good news when you walk into the room? Uh, do you bring with you that which is good news? Uh, God's salvation is, uh, first off, it is good news. Let's then read the passage. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel, uh, and that's the bit that's inserted by the NIV, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, we turn to these opening verses in Paul's letter to the, the church at Rome. It is um, essentially about gospel. What is the gospel? And the way that we're going to divide it up this evening is um, in uh, two parts, as I think you'll see from your handout that you should have received. Um, first of all, under the heading of gospel basics, that's verses one to seven, and then in verses eight to 17, gospel blessings. And uh, we will take a break between the two. I'm hoping that uh, maybe around about quarter 20 past, we'll take a break and uh, then move on into the, the second part of our evening. Um, that's how the opening passage divides up. And, and you'll see and recognize immediately that, that it is essentially about gospel. And in these opening seven verses, what Paul is doing, you recall that his intention is really just to flag up his doctrinal statement uh, for the church at Rome to say what it is that he stands for, to set out clearly the message that he proclaims. Uh, he starts straight in by helping us to understand uh, after that initial opening statement in verse one as to who he is, that threefold designation of him that underlines his authority as a pastoral leader, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He, he launches then straight into a statement of what the gospel is. Um, it would be an interesting question to ask yourself what your answer would be if someone came to you and said, just tell me in a nutshell, what is the gospel? Um, your answer may um, well be a variety of things because Paul's here is essentially threefold. And he starts off um, by underlining that the gospel is essentially a promise. Uh, that in a sense is what makes it good news. Um, it, it's not a contract that God is asking us to enter into. Uh, it's not a, a performance level that we have to meet in order to satisfy some credentials. Uh, it is a promise that he makes. And you'll see how that's how he introduces it in that opening couple of lines, the gospel that he promised beforehand. And what runs through this is, is simply um, the, the basic truth that the message is indeed the gospel of God. It is his message. Uh, when uh, Peter was declaring the, uh, the gospel to Cornelius and explaining the message, uh, that's how he put it. Uh, chapter 10 of Acts, verse 36. The, you know, he said, the, the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Um, it is the message that God sent. And he underlines that, the, the fact that it is God's message, uh, in three distinct ways in these opening verses, uh, so that the Roman church may indeed be absolutely clear. This is, this is no ordinary message. This is not just someone's opinion, not someone's ideas. This is God's own message. And he underlines that in these three ways. First of all, in the phrase that he says promised beforehand. 
you may think, well, that's that's just kind of slipped in as, uh, as a couple of extra words type of thing. But um, what what Paul is pointing to there is is simply the fact that that this is the the essential trademark that God uses. Um, a long time ago, uh, uh, for my twenty first birthday, I was given a coffee table by my aunt and uncle, very generous they were, um, if they'd known just how much greater in value that coffee table would be, they, they might have um, uh, kept it to themselves, I think. But it was what's called a mouseman table. Uh, Robert Thompson, the carpenter down in Yorkshire, uh, had as his trademark, and I won't go into the reason why he had it as his trademark, but he had as his trademark every single bit of furniture that he, he made and that his firm made had on it a, a little mouse and that was their trademark if you saw the mouse you knew it was from his workshop and God similarly has a trademark and the trademark is simply this that what he does is always prefaced by his having promised it beforehand uh, and that really is the reason why the New Testament starts as it does, which is not the way you probably would have started the New Testament uh, with a genealogy. But what Matthew is doing, starting off the New Testament, is, is taking us right back to Abram. Why? Because it was to Abram that the promise was made. And then he goes on down to David and to David, a promise was made. And his reason for so doing is to underline the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, that is God's trademark. Uh, you find that trademark of God stated quite clearly in uh, one or two places in the Old Testament um, as a, a single statement. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 12, for instance, where God says, I revealed and saved and proclaimed. And in that one liner, you have a classic, simple statement of the way in which God, almost without exception, operates that's just his way of working before he does anything he reveals he he flags up in advance what he's going to do then he does it and what he does is he saves and then having done that he then proclaims that salvation um, and you get that that very clear simple statement of the way that God works in that one liner in Isaiah 43 verse 12 you get a, a very similar statement in Amos chapter 3 verse 7 where um, the, the prophet says, um, the Lord does nothing, the sovereign Lord does nothing without first revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. Same thing again. That's just how God works. And it's a very bold and bold statement. The Lord does nothing without first revealing to his prophets what he's going to do. Uh, that's the way he delights to work. And that, of course, plays out on both the, the large canvas of history so that um, God's promise to Abram is in the fullness of time um, fulfilled in the coming of and in the person of Jesus. But it's also played out in the way in which he works in our lives as individuals as well. And so you will see instances of that running through the scripture. Uh, you see it, for instance, in Joseph, who as a young teenager has, by means of the dreams, uh, revealed to him advance, in advance 
what God's purposes for his life are. Uh, he doesn't understand it or he misinterprets it to start with, but, but God has flagged up in advance that he will have a leadership role. He will have a significant role of leadership uh, within the life of his family and indeed far broader than that as well. And years down the line, of course, we, we see how that initial dream uh, was indeed realized in his life. Uh, sometimes it's it's bad news that God flags up in advance to to um, comfort those who are passing through troubled times that, that God knows what he's doing here. You find an instance of that in Job, for instance, where right at the outset in Job chapter three at verse 25, Job says, the thing that I dread has come upon me. And, and there's a sense in which God has already gently intimated to this very godly, gracious man, the trials that he's going to have to pass through in the same way as in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 following. Uh, it is flagged up to the Apostle Paul that, that there are certain trials that are going to await him so that when they happen, Paul is not going to be surprised by them and not going to be dumbfounded and think, help, you know, God has deserted me, but will be able to recognize, yeah, God knows what he's doing. Um, that is his trademark way of working. And so when Paul says um, that the gospel has been promised beforehand, what he's pointing to is the, the fact that um, this is the way that God works. He underlines it, secondly, by reference to that promise beforehand being through his servants, the prophets. Uh, the prophets are his servants. They are the ones who become his mouthpiece. And as they uh, set down and proclaim that message that is uh, written down and incorporated into the body of scripture that we know as the Old Testament, uh, God again flagging up his promise. These are his anointed servants uh, through whom uh, it is demonstrably the case that God has been speaking. And so not only is the, the promise made beforehand, it is promised through his servants, and then um, it is promised through his prophets, and you'll see the Holy Scriptures. And so what Paul is pointing to is, first of all, God's trademark way of working. Secondly, God's servants through whom he works and speaks. And thirdly, God's book, God's holy book, the Scriptures, so that the message is rooted in the scriptures, it is emphatically God's message. And it is essentially a promise, something that has been promised to us. And because it has been promised by a God who does not lie and who does not renege in his promises, we may indeed be confident about it. Second way in which he describes the gospel is in terms of a person. This is just as true, obviously. The gospel is a promise, but the gospel is obviously also a person. And that person is Jesus. And the whole focus of the scriptures is to direct our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the, uh, the promise is indeed the message of God, what Paul is intent on underlining here is that Jesus is the son of God. Now, there are good arguments for thinking that Paul is using in these couple of verses here, verses uh, uh, three and four. Uh, he's, he's using material from another source, quite possibly an early hymn. It just has that sort of um, uh, 
uh, structure to it that is suggestive of hymnody in the ancient church. And that may well be the case. I, I won't trouble you with the arguments for that, but it has been quite well argued that that, that is quite likely. And if that's the case, it may well be that Paul is, is just keen to establish some sort of immediate rapport with the Christians at Rome with um, terminology of a hymn that they're familiar with in the same way as in you know if you were um, introducing yourself perhaps to a, a free church congregation you might well uh, quote some of the Scottish metrical psalms just because you know that's that's familiar territory to them or in another context you might quote a, a kind of Stuart Townend song and words from that and people would immediately think yeah the guy's on the same wavelength as ourselves um, it's, it's it's not capable of being proved, but uh, it may well be that this has already been incorporated into the hymnody of the early church, uh, the, the reference to the person of Jesus. And what Paul is, is doing here um, in these couple of verses is underlining three important truths in relation to this person, Jesus. First of all, his humanity, by stressing the fact that uh, uh, it is regarding his son who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. Um, he is doing what Matthew is doing. He is tracing the coming of Jesus to the promise that was made to Abram, first of all, and then more particularly to David, the promise that the king who was to come, the king whose kingdom would be forever lasting, um, the king has now come and he is in the direct line of descent. Uh, as a descendant of David, the man who tackled giants. Uh, this Jesus tackles the big giants that we face in life, including death itself, and he comes out on top. And, and this, uh, like David, was the man who rose to be king. So Jesus, we are assured, is the one who has come to be king. And in that human line of descent, to exercise that royal uh, role on our behalf. Um, the king in the, the ancient world was very much the protector, was very much the champion, was very much the defender of his people. He, uh, he by his strength, uh, defeated their enemies and kept them safe and provided for their needs. Some of them obviously did it better than others. And here is the king that is promised. Um, and that's why Paul stresses his humanity. Uh, he is one of us and he has come to exercise that royal reign over our lives and for our good. Second thing he stresses here is his authority. Uh, and that is in consequence of the resurrection. Uh, his humanity is in line with the promise. His authority is in consequence of the resurrection. You'll see there the reference uh, to um, the, uh, the fact that he was declared with power to be the son of God, verse four. Um, it, it's not entirely clear what that with power refers to. Uh, some argue that it's um, with reference to the, the, the clarity of the declaration. We kind of always had an inkling that he was the son of God, in other words, but now that he's raised from the dead, hey, yeah, we're, we're absolutely clear, crystal clear about that. That's really impressed powerfully upon us. Uh, and some make a case for that, that that's what Paul is pointing to, that uh, there's absolutely no doubt about it now that Jesus is the, the son of God because he's raised from the dead. Um, but it's, I think, more likely, and I think this is where the, the bulk of the commentators tend to land, I think it's more likely that the, the with power has reference to the 
um, the new state of affairs that has come into play after the resurrection of Jesus in the light of his having finally triumphed on our behalf as the, the son of God with our humanity and in our humanity, he has triumphed over the powers of darkness. And therefore now in the light of the resurrection, uh, he has assumed this status on our behalf. Uh, he always was the son of God, but he is now as our representative. Uh, he is the son of God and declared to be so with that authority that he speaks about at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. Uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, and I think that's probably what's, uh, what's referenced here by Paul's use of that phrase, with power declared to be the son of God. Um, not that it was ever new to him, he always was the son of God, but now uh, he is as the son of God, assuming our humanity on the back of his resurrection. He is the one to whom all authority has been given. And uh, so Paul is making a big statement, obviously, about the humanity of Jesus and then the authority of Jesus. And thirdly, about his centrality um, in uh, the, the light of the cross. Uh, the centrality of the Lord Jesus. And uh, he, he underscores this by the terminology that he uses. You'll see there uh, in verse four, um, declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And then the statement, Jesus, who is he? He is first of all, the Christ. That's to say the anointed one, uh, the Messiah, the one who was promised, who would combine in his person the, the three different roles, which in the Old Testament were always uh, anointed roles. The role of the prophet who brought the word of God, the role of the priest who brought and ministered the grace of God, and the role of the king who exercised the rule of God. And these three combined together in the promised Messiah, the promised anointed one who would bring the word of God, the grace of God and the rule of God uh, together. Um, Jesus, who is he? He is the anointed one. He is the one who speaks God's word, who ministers God's grace, exercises God's rule. And he is the Lord. Um, that's the, the statement that he makes there. Jesus Christ, our Lord, um, the one who is the highest authority. It's the, the word that would translate the, uh, the Old Testament name of God, um, Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, translated in our Bibles, uh, L-O-R-D with capital letters all the way through. Um, Jesus is God. He is that God. He is the covenant God who's come among us. And he is the one who is the final authority, the one who exercises the reign of God, the rule of God that brings to order into our chaos, light into our darkness and fullness into what otherwise are empty lives. Um, that's the rule of God. And we come under the rule of God in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, and that's the second way in which Paul um, introduces the gospel. What is the gospel? It's first of all a promise. Secondly, it is plainly a person, and that's the, the central plank, as it were, of his testimony about the gospel. But it is thirdly also a people. And uh, you'll see how he then goes on in those succeeding verses uh, um, from verse five to verse seven. Uh, to to highlight the fact that that essentially also is what the 
the gospel is. It is a people. It's, it's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. Um, it is by virtue of the person and in line with the promise. It is God bringing into being a new people, a new humanity. Um, there's a sense in which that is the essence of the gospel from Genesis chapter one onwards. God creates a humanity that is the image and likeness of himself. And that, that image and likeness of himself distorted by the fall. And the God who as creator brought that humanity into being is committed in the gospel to bringing into being a new humanity, a new people. And so if the promise is the message of God and Jesus is the son of God, believers are the collective of God. Some of you are familiar with the music of uh, Rend Collective. Uh, so you'll be familiar with the, the terminology. Uh, that's to say simply a, a group of people who may have a lot of things that are very different about themselves, but who share a common basic interest and purpose and believers are that collective of God. And you'll notice in these three verses, five, six, and seven, how frequently the verb call is used by Paul um, uh, three times over, at least in these verses. Um, we are the called out people. And it's, it's worth our while just noting uh, how integral that is, the, the call of God to the statement of the gospel that Paul is making right at the outset of his letter. Remember the overarching theme, that is salvation. It is good news because it is a promise that God has made that's centered on a person that brings into being a new humanity. And that humanity is called into being by God. Um, the uh, the terminology that he uses is is one that would be familiar to the Christians at Rome and those who lived in that ancient world. Uh, the ecclesia, uh, that's to say, the called out, um, was a term that was used in the cities of ancient Greece to describe the city council, those who were called out to serve as representatives in the decision making process of the, the city, they were the ecclesia. And um, that's the, the word from which we get ecclesiastical um, because the church is the ecclesia, the people called out by God to serve him as his elected representatives, bringing his rule to bear upon the world. And again, through these verses, um, you will see, I hope, um, uh, three important truths that Paul is concerned to underline in respect of this people that we now know as uh, the church, uh, the body of believers. Uh, three hugely important truths about believers, about those who constitute the new humanity, who constitute that collective of God, the ecclesia. The first important truth that he underlines is this, that they are a people called out of the plurality of nations. Uh, so that you have an idea where we're going with this. The second important truth that he will highlight, I'll come back to the first in a moment, is that we are called under the lordship of Jesus. And the third important truth is we are called into the family of God. 
So out of the plurality of nations, under the lordship of Jesus and into the family of God. And that's very carefully being stated by Paul in these opening verses. Um, he is really just setting from the outset uh, the marker for where he's going with this letter, what this message is all about. Um, it is about a new humanity that God is wonderfully, gloriously creating that will come into its own in the full light of eternity. And the first hugely important truth that, that we are maybe so familiar with, we, we lose sight of just how much of a bombshell this was in the ancient world, is that it's out of the plurality of nations. You'll see how he speaks in those terms there. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles. Um, that's uh, quite astonishing, um, but he is intent upon underlining that, and he will deal very fully with that in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of this letter in a much fuller way, but he's flagging it up right from the outset here, um, that this new humanity comprises both Jews and Gentiles, and he stresses uh, the, the, this is indeed the, the purpose of God from the beginning. God has promised this beforehand. Um, and, and I think that's what he means by saying uh, that through him and for his name's sake, this is what he has been about from the very beginning. Uh, this has been the purpose of God. And you'll be aware that um, the way in which the, the book of Genesis is structured uh, means that when we get to uh, the call of Abram and the promise that is made by God to Abram that he will know the blessing of God and through him all the earth will be blessed. That is immediately prefaced in the preceding chapter by the reference to the Tower of Babel and the way in which the nations of the earth came into being. They were scattered, they were uh, uh, dispersed, they were a separate, divided people. Uh, and the nations of the earth scattered abroad by God, chapter 11. Um, it's as if God is flagging up in that chapter, I haven't forgotten the nations. The promise that I'm making to Abram has the nations that are now scattered, that are now divided, that are uh, marked by this sin and by this disintegration in their experience, both individually and corporately. Uh, I have them in mind and I will bring them back again the nations of the earth together. That's what the day of Pentecost obviously very visually demonstrated in the city of Jerusalem. This is what Jesus came for. This is what he was about to bring the nations together. And so people from all over the, uh, the, the, the place were gathered together in Jerusalem on that occasion and they came together. You can almost see the, the kind of magnetism of what was going on in Acts chapter 2 there as they are drawn from the different nations of the earth to that focal point and come under uh, the Lordship of Jesus. It, it was from the very beginning the purpose of God and it was the essential particular specific nature of the apostleship of Paul from the outset. I'm going to come back to that uh, just a little bit later on, but uh, he was very specifically called by God to exercise that apostleship to the Gentiles. And he, he understood that, uh, that that was his particular calling. And therefore, uh, 
as a result of that call that he'd received, he brought that message to the nations, to the Gentile nations. And obviously there's a sense in which Rome at the time was the, the kind of epicenter, the, the symbolic capital of the Gentile world. And so Paul is writing right into the midst of the Gentile world and saying this is a message for everyone. Um, so it is out of the plurality of nations that this new people are called. Secondly, you will see that uh, it is under the lordship of Jesus that this people are called. And um, here he, he makes reference there uh, in verse five again, uh, his apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. The NIV translates to the obedience that comes from faith, but uh, that's not actually what Paul says. That's a, a kind of way of trying to interpret it or trying to give some, uh, some understanding to it. But what Paul says is the obedience of faith. Um, it's an important phrase. Because if you turn to the very end of the letter, chapter 16 and verse 26, the penultimate verse of the whole letter, you will see the same phrase occurs. Um, it's as if he deliberately bookends the whole letter with this. The, the essence of the faith that we exercise is that it is uh, what he calls obedient, the obedience of faith. And, and there are two two. two uh, ways of understanding what's meant by this. What, what's not meant is that we somehow earn our salvation. Um, that, that would be knocked on the head by just about every other bit of the, the letter to the Romans. That, that's plainly not what is meant. Um, it's not that we earn our salvation by being good girls and boys and, and obeying God. And the more we obey God, the better uh, we, we get on in terms of his kingdom. What he means is that that faith is, first of all, obedience in the sense that it is a response to the summons of the gospel. Because that's what the, the gospel is. Um, it is not an invitation. Uh, despite what may have been your experience where you are invited to the front, you're not invited to the front. You're not invited to come out. You are summoned by God. He, he's not kind of offering a, a, a nice little invitation anyone wants. He is summoning humanity. Uh, it is a an order, a command. Um, Paul underlines that when he's in Athens in that chapter 17. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, he doesn't invite them to repent. Uh, the gospel isn't an invitation. It is a summons. And faith, therefore, is a response to that summons that is obedient to the summons. In the same way as Lazarus, when he is in the tomb, is obedient to the command that is issued to him. The command of Jesus spoken into the, the tomb of Lazarus is the command of the gospel. It is come to me. Uh, come to me, all you that are weary, laden, heavy burdens. I will give you rest. He is speaking that word into a tomb to the bafflement of the people around you. Think, you know, the guy's dead. How on earth are you going to uh, see a man who is dead responding? But the very command of God creates the capacity to respond uh, in, in the wonder and mystery of the power of the word of God uh, that you see in creation, where God says, let there be light, and there is light. 
Jesus speaks into the tomb and says, come to me. And the dead man comes out of the tomb. And it is the obedience of faith. And Paul is, is uh, underlining that there is that sense in which our faith is that obedience to the summons of God. We are responding to the call of God to come to Jesus. So there is that sense in which we're to understand the, the obedience of faith, calling people to the obedience of faith. But there is a, another sense as well that it's important not to miss, and that is that faith issues in obedience because it is an acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus. We deliberately entrust ourselves to him and to his rule over our lives. And I think um, Douglas Moo, actually, in, in his commentary, puts it very well. Uh, I'll put up in just a moment, unless it's up on the screen already, the, the quotation that he gives. Um, the fuller quotation runs like this. I think it's quite helpful. He says, we must avoid two theological extremes, separating faith from obedience in such a way that we can have the one without the other or identifying them in such a way that obedience is actually minimized. Um, Paul, along with other New Testament writers, he goes on, certainly emphasizes the basic importance of faith as the means by which we get into relationship with God. But, and then this is the, the quote that you have on your screen, but precisely because faith is not exercised in a vacuum, but is directed to one who is the Lord, the commitment to obey is inextricably bound up with true faith. So faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. They must be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. And you might like just to, to ponder that. I've put that, and I, I think I put that on your, your handout as well, because it's, it's worth just having uh, that, uh, that clear statement of what Paul means by uh, the obedience of faith. Uh, it is, as I say, it is what bookends the whole letter, um, chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 16, verse 26, the obedience of faith. We come under the lordship of Jesus. So that's the second uh, of the important truths that he's underlining about this new humanity. The first, that um, it is out of the plurality of uh, the nations. The second, that it's under the lordship of, of Jesus. And thirdly, uh, it is a humanity that is called into the family of God. And so you'll see the way in which he lavishly piles this on uh, in the, the, the closing couple of verses. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he is um, saying here is you are loved by God and you are called to be saints. And the nature of that love that God has for you is a familiar love. He is now your father, um, a radical um, fresh perspective that is being fed into the the whole thrust of the Old Testament, drawing out what was always intrinsically there. Israel is my firstborn son, the fatherhood of God. Uh, it is into a family that we are brought. And uh, that's why Jesus taught 
his disciples to pray in those familiar terms. Uh, how do we pray? This is how you pray. You say, our father, we are part of a family. It's not a, a, a an individual exercise. You are not a solitary believer who has a single relationship with the living God. You are brought into a family, a collective of people. And the thing that unites you is that you belong to the one family because you have the same father and you are loved by that father and called by him to be saints. That's to say the set apart ones, um, those who have uh, the privileges that belong to the family of God, the dignity that's uh, on the family of God, the security that belongs to the children of God and, and all the privileges that go with royalty. And it is to all at Rome who are believers, uh, not just some, uh, not just the leaders, not just some kind of uh, super saints uh, who've got it all held together uh, because by and large they don't exist, uh, but all of you believers, that's the truth about you. You've been called into the family and you are, therefore, all of you, you are loved by God and you are now in the position of being those on whom have been bestowed the privileges of royalty. And, and what Paul is actually doing here, although it's it's perhaps um, not quite so easy for us to, to appreciate it as it might have been for the original recipients of the letter, is applying Old Testament categories and terms that described the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He is now using precisely this terminology and applying it to both Jews and Gentile believers. Um, and, and that would not have been lost on them. Uh, all that was true about the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, he is now applying that to the believers at Rome, whether or not they are Jewish, whether or not they are Gentile, that is the essence of their, uh, their status. Now, they are the people of God, loved by God and set apart to be saints, called by God to be his people and to minister his royal authority in the world that is his. And the nature of the privileges that belong to us, well, he spells them out in those two words, grace and peace from God our Father. That's his gift. That's his, uh, his gift that he gladly bestows upon his children. Grace, our lives are simply steeped in, soaked in, defined by, driven by, and always uh, rooted in grace. Um, the whole next section of the letter uh, will explore this much, much more fully, uh, but he wants them to understand that from the start. You live now in the realm of grace. And that means, bottom line, that what happens to you is not on the basis of your performance. God doesn't love you more because you behave better. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And your performance does not alter that one little bit. He loves you. He will deal with you as beloved child. Nothing will alter that, uh, that basic reality that he deals with you, not as you deserve, but in grace. And most of us struggle with that. We, we come to faith 
Uh, we understand that it is by grace that we're saved. We gladly embrace that. We thank God for that. And quite easily, we get sucked into a way of thinking that reverts away from grace. And Paul wants to underline the whole of our living is steeped in grace. And of course, that will translate, as we'll see later on, uh, to the way in which we relate to the, the people around us as well. We will learn to live ourselves in the realm of grace and in the manner of grace. We will learn what it is to live a grace-filled and a grace-fueled life. And the peace that he speaks of here is um, really the, the translation of the Hebrew word that uh, you're all familiar with, namely shalom, which is a very, very comprehensive word that speaks about the, uh, the, the, the well-being, the total well-being, body, mind, spirit, the, the whole well-being, uh, our truest welfare. And, and it's that which the Lord, our God and our Father, bestows upon us in and through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that's, that's his opening statement, his opening salvo, as it were. Um, gospel basics. Um, what is the gospel? It is a promise. It is a person. It is a people. And if you get that, says Paul, then, then you've at least kind of got the uh, the basics of what we're going to be talking about through the rest of the, the letter. Um, that's the gospel. And we'll take a break just for the moment so that you get the chance to, to get a cup of tea. Uh, we'll come back in uh, five minutes time and pick up on verses 8 to 17, where Paul's theme is very much uh, gospel blessings. The second part, um, chapter 1, verses 8 to 17 now. Uh, I've entitled Gospel Blessings, and my hope is as we, we work our way through this that you will begin to appreciate um, something of what the, the gospel is meant to do in us. Um, it is meant to affect us. And so I want to start by referring you to one of my all-time favourite writers from a bygone age, and that's Jonathan Edwards. Uh, not the, the long jumper, but uh, long before his time. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a very, very able guy indeed, who ministered during what uh, was known as the Great Awakening in uh, the 18th century. And he, um, um, he was most famous uh, for a sermon that he preached uh, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And um, uh, remarkable things happened on the back of that. And, and he's most famous, I suppose, for, for that. He was a pastor um, and he uh, was a, a very astute observer of the Great Awakening. And in 1746, he wrote and published a three-part book called A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. Uh, it is um, one of the most significant books in Christian experience that has been written in history. Um, and if you can get a hold of it, uh, grab a hold of it and um, read it. Uh, you can actually get the complete works of Jonathan Edwards for absolutely nothing on Kindle. Uh, it's remarkable. Uh, you buy the Banner of Truth stuff, it's huge, huge, two volumes of a massive big book. 
Um, and, and one of the, the things that he wrote was this treatise concerning religious affections in three parts. Um, here's what one reviewer uh, said about it. Jonathan Edwards is brilliant. I thought reading this book, I would find something complicated and brainy. Uh, it was actually very straightforward. It slowly became thought provoking and caused me to think all sorts of thoughts. I was very convicted by this book. It challenges you to live a truly authentic Christian life. It challenges you to think about genuine religious affections and not the show. After reading this book, I figured out that the greatest thing about Edwards is that it's not about Edwards. I would recommend this book to anybody. Truly inspirational Christianity is proclaimed here. More than an emotional whimpering basket case of sob stories. I love how Edwards seeks to deal with the heart and teaches us to deal with the heart. Not that he neglects actions, he just begins where we should, the heart. I love this because it's manly, honest, emotional Christian faith that is focused on God, not man. It's rare to find books like this. And, and it is a hugely important book because it deals with what Jonathan Edwards calls the affections. And his argument is, as I put up there on the screen, true religion must consist very much in the affections. And he goes on to say, as in worldly things, worldly affections are very much the spring of men's motion and action. Think about it, how it applies to yourself. What are the things that really drive you to do certain things, to go certain places? Um, the affections. So in religious matters, the spring of their actions is very much religious affection. He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. And in a word, there never was anything considerable brought to pass in the heart or life of any man living by the things of religion that had not his heart deeply affected by those things. The Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affection, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, sorrow, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. Now, um, you can get a hold of a treatise on religious affections in three parts um, through the banner of truth. You can get it on Kindle. Um, some people do find it quite difficult and demanding. So um, another way of going about it is getting a hold of a book by Sam Storms called Signs of the Spirit. Um, and what Sam Storms has done is basically... Um, uh, one of the guys who is an expert on Jonathan Edwards, he's attempted to bridge the gap between how Edwards said what he did in the 18th century and how he might have said it today. And in that book, Signs of the Spirit, basically what he's doing is he's articulating the substance of Jonathan Edwards' arguments in a much more understandable way. Uh, not to dumb down Jonathan Edwards, but to make his, his work more accessible to a wider audience. And uh, you can get that book um, for yourself as well. Uh, I, I smiled when I read what one reviewer said about Sam Storm's book. He put it like this. Thank you, Dr. Storms, for this labor of love. What a wonderful gesture of putting the cookies where the kids can reach them. 
Signs of the Spirit is a should read for anyone struggling in a world of postmodern evangelicalism and the empty life of man-centered worship. Now, what Jonathan Edwards was on about basically was, was simply this. Uh, he's not talking about just the emotions. Um, he's talking about um, something that, that will be emotional, certainly, without being deliberately emotive, but that affects our whole being. We are profoundly affected by the gospel. Uh, that's to say the impact of the gospel on believers' hearts, that thereby issues in a changed manner of living and a changed experience of life. Uh, the gospel changes everything. Jesus changes everything. He affects us in that sense, in such a way that we are profoundly moved by it. And that's uh, what the history that I was speaking about last time, the history to do with the, the letter to the Romans, has again and again demonstrated people profoundly affected by a reading of this letter so that their lives and their living and their influence and their impact became something totally out of proportion to anything that they might have countenanced beforehand. And it's that that I think Paul is immediately going on to illustrate in the succeeding verses, having flagged up in verses one to seven, the essence of what the gospel is. What he then does is illustrate how profoundly that gospel affects us. And he does so in these three ways that I've tried to put out there on the, the handout for you. And um, you will see, I hope, uh, I'm, I'm not just making this up and I'm not uh, uh, just uh, conjuring up three headings for the sake of having three headings. It's, it's, it's there in the text, look at the text and work it through thereafter. And, and I hope that that's what you will do, that you will take time just to, to go over this again and allow God to be speaking through this to you. And uh, what um, what Paul does through these verses, uh, I think, has uh, a huge significance for ourselves today in terms of the impact of the gospel on our hearts, on our lives, on our perspective, on our living, on our attitudes and our experience. There are three ways that Paul illustrates the gospel affecting us. Uh, first, it makes us thankful, verses 8 to 10. Then in verses 11 to 15, it makes us eager. And then in verses 16 and 17, it makes us thrilled, totally thrilled to bits. And uh, I, I deliberately put them out there straight off because I want to ask you the question about yourself, first of all, if that, that characterizes you because that's what the gospel will do to you. Um, and, and if it's not what characterizes you, then down on your knees, ask God, please, living God, do this in my life. Open my eyes, touch my heart in such a way that I become thankful, eager, and thrilled. Um, we live in a society that is, is constantly complaining constantly thinking about and concentrating on what we don't have. 
what we'd like to have, what we don't have, how we think things should be, and so on. And over against that, what the gospel does is it, it creates in us a profound gratitude to the living God. Um, with that, it gives to us a real eagerness, a real zest for life. Uh, and in particular, a real eagerness for that fellowship that we share with other believers in the service of Christ. We'll see that in verses uh, 11 to 15. And alongside that, it, it just causes us to be uh, pumped up and uh, our hearts throbbing with the, the sheer wonder and glory and splendor and beauty and, and possibilities that there are in the gospel. Uh, and and just gets it out of bed every morning. We are thrilled to bits. That's what he's on about, verses 16 to 17. Let me work through each of these with you and, and encourage you uh, to, to go back over them, to ponder them, to, to pray them into your whole being. But first of all, um, he speaks about his being thankful. Um, it, it is one of the striking things about the, the letters that Paul writes that that almost without exception, there is an exception, and that's the letter to the, the church at Galatia, and, and there are reasons, I think, why that's the case. But almost without exception, that's always where he starts. It doesn't matter what the problems are. It doesn't matter how catastrophic the, the issues are in the life of the church. It doesn't matter uh, how many hairs he's having to pull out his hairs. He tries to deal with these things. He always starts with gratitude, thankful. And, and it's a good way to uh, start your letters as well. Uh, if any of you ever write in a letters these days, good way to start an email. Uh, one of the things about emails is people tend because it's that sort of type of thing. They, they just pitch in um, to, to what they want to say uh, without giving it a, a context. And the context is uh, gratitude, um, thankful. And so you'll find here, that's what Paul says. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Um, First, I thank my God. And, and he is thanking God for these believers because he recognizes what we need to recognize, that faith is indeed a miracle. It is the work of God. Uh, it's just wonderful. Um, the faith may be flawed. It may be uh, tarnished in all sorts of different ways. But the very fact that there is a believer there is a work of God. And he's saying thank you to the Lord and thanking the Lord because he recognizes that in the, the mystery of God's grace, he privileges us to share with him in the, uh, the fostering and the nurturing and the, the engendering of that faith. And that in two ways to which he refers here. Um, Paul, Paul understands the, the dynamics of this, that faith is indeed a wonderful work of God that he privileges us to share in. And we share in that through prayer. First of all, you see how that dominates that opening little bit there, verses 8 to 10. Uh, his praying, um, he engages in prayer. He is thanking God, but he is praying for these believers. And we share in that work of God, in the, the uh, creating of faith and the nurturing of faith uh, through prayer. And by prayer, um, these three ways in particular in which we, we share in the work of God. First of all, in the engendering of their faith. That's to say the, the creation of their faith. Uh, some of you will be familiar with a book that C.H. Spurgeon wrote called The Soul Winner. 
Again, you can get that on Kindle for a, a very reasonable price. If you have never read that, um, put that at the top of the list of the things that you need to read. Uh, it's not complicated, not uh, difficult at all. Just called The Soul Winner. Um, don't you want to be a soul winner? Don't you want to be one through whom God works in such a way that people come to a living faith? And he has a, a great chapter in that. Uh, and they're all great, the chapters, but there's one in particular that just stands out a mile. Uh, the chapter is simply called How to Raise the Dead. Uh, and uh, you want to get into that and read that how to raise the dead it's um written back in uh donkey's years back obviously but uh, uh it, it's so applicable today um you are surrounded by people who are dead spiritually you have a scratchy head and think how on earth are they going to come to life read the chapter how to raise the dead um that's what he's addressing saying okay uh, we get to privilege to be share in that and this is what he says um it's it's um uh, not too long a quotation i hope um and you can find it in the the book itself what he says, there must be prayer, much prayer, constant prayer, vehement prayer, the kind of prayer which will not take a denial, like Luther's prayer, which he called the bombarding of heaven. That's to say, the planting a cannon at heaven's gates to blow them open. For after this fashion, fervent men prevail in prayer. They will not come from the mercy seat until they can cry with Luther, Vicky. Latin. I have conquered. I have gained the blessing for which I strove. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, quoting scripture, and the violent take it by force. May we offer such violent, God-constraining, heaven-compelling prayers, and the Lord will not permit us to seek his face in vain. And you want to allow yourself to be challenged, motivated, inspired, enthused to learn how to pray like that. Planting a cannon at heaven's gates to blow them open and plead with the living God for the salvation of men and women and girls and boys, that God would do that work in their hearts whereby their eyes were opened and their hearts were touched and they were brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and made alive. God raises the dead and he privileges us to share with him in that through our praying. Paul understood that. I thank my God. When, when you see that happening, um, it's just something for which you are so thankful. It affects you. And, and the more you see it, the more you want to see it, the more you're emboldened to seek it. Uh, and that's what he's on about. Here's a man who is thankful that he gets to play a part in the engendering of faith, in the enlargement of their faith. Uh, faith is something that grows. And as we pray for one another, and as he prays for the folk in Rome, uh, their faith is growing, developing and being enlarged. And by prayer, we encourage others in prayer, uh, in their faith as well. Uh, and he recognizes the the significant role that we get to play uh, through prayer in the purposes of God in faith, the work of God. But we get to share in it. We get to share in it through prayer, but we also get to share in it through preaching. You'll see how he speaks there in these verses about his particular involvement in that regard. Uh, God, whom I serve with my whole heart. 
uh, in the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. And he goes on in verse 15, obviously, to speak about his preaching as well. Um, that was the passion of his life. Um, the, the NIV in, um, in verse um, 10 there, um, in verse 9 rather, uh, inserts the word preaching. Um, it's not there in the original. Um, what Paul is saying is uh, whom I serve uh, with my spirit or with my whole heart, but I, but I think he's almost certainly actually referring to the, the Holy Spirit, God whom I serve um, in my spirit, in, in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the gospel of his son. Um, that's what he's doing uh, as he preaches, as he shares the message, as he sounds out the truths about Jesus, as he communicates the gospel, as you communicate the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, um, then uh, uh, gratitude for the way in which God is pleased to use that. Um, so um, prayer, and, and he is uh, thankful for the way in which he's privileged to share with the, uh, the Lord in that work of creating faith and preaching. Uh, as uh, a means by which God affects that. That's the first um, way in which the gospel affects him. It creates that gratitude. The second in verses 11 to 15, I just want to touch on this briefly, is an eagerness. Um, and yes, January, mid-January, in the middle of a lockdown, when it's cold, dark, icy, and probably going to rain and snow and do all sorts of nasty things as well. And Christmas is now past. New Year is now past. It wasn't that great anyway because of the people that we didn't get to see and so on and so forth. It's a bad time of year. Um, and uh, how, do you, how do you cultivate that eagerness? Uh, the gospel makes him eager. Um, and what he's talking about in verses 11 to 15 is, is a recognition that Christians, believers, are the people of God. And he's highlighting uh, first the blessings of mutual ministry. That's why he's eager to be with them. Uh, I want to see you, um, not just to write to you, not just to speak to you, not just to have a Zoom meeting with you. I want to be with you to see you three-dimensionally so that we may share mutual blessing. Um, and, and that's from the Apostle Paul. You'd think it's a kind of one-way street with the Apostle Paul that surely he's the one who is ministering blessing. But he's saying, no, I, I get so much from you guys. I'm, I'm eager to be with you, to be encouraged by you, to be blessed by you. And I have to say that, that I miss that massively. Uh, over these past months where uh, the the building is empty when I go into it and uh, I, I don't get the opportunity on a Sunday that I used to get um, and I'm longing for the day when it comes back and we're able to to meet together I can see others and be with others speak with others share with others and be encouraged and blessed and are built and strengthened and comforted and enthused by others um, that's what he's longing for uh, there's just such a blessing in being with the people of God. And uh, that's that's the perspective he has that, that God, by his Holy Spirit, through the range of different individuals that there are, and some of them are easier to get on with than others, obviously, and some of them are pretty complicated guys, and you haven't a clue what they're on about, and coming out of a whole different direction, and some of them have a really odd sense of humor that is hardly recognizable as a sense of humor in the first place. But, hey, they're part of the people of God, and there's blessing and encouragement thereby, and he he's keen to know that, to meet with them in, um, in Rome. 
um, you'll probably be aware of that yourself, that, that you go to a strange place and you go to a, um, a, a service of worship on a Sunday and you've never met the people before, but hey, you just get on like a house on fire with them because they are uh, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God who love Jesus Christ and it's an enriching blessed experience so the blessings of mutual ministry the prospect of further fruitfulness you'll see how he speaks there of that being a reason why he's eager to be there that i might have a harvest among you just as i've had among the other gentiles um just seeing god at work in their lives um i've i've been a pastor in uh, Cumbernauld first of all and then in Edinburgh church in Edinburgh now here in Aberdeen and and it's just a thrill to to watch God at work and in the most unlikely sort of ways the most unusual sort of people and and in in ways that leave you just laughing out loud at the uh, just how ridiculous in a sense it is that, that who would have ever imagined that God could do that would do that and yet here it is he's done it um, I, I would love to be able to tell you some of the, the narratives from uh, Cumbernauld, some of the people that God worked in, and just to see God at work in people's lives like that. Paul is eager to, to get to Rome and see God at work there as well, the prospect of further fruitfulness. And then uh, the expression, thirdly, this is the third reason for his eagerness, the expression of uh, an enduring indebtedness that he's conscious of. You'll see that in verse 14. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Uh, this is a guy who's who's just desperate to be able to give expression to his gratitude to God for all that God has worked in his life and all that God has done in him. And he's very conscious that the, the particular avenues down which God has said that gratitude is to flow for him is in ministering to the Gentile world. That was his call from God. You read about that in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Acts chapter 22, verse 16, and Acts chapter 26, verses 17 to 23. Um, those were the channels that he recognized God had said, so, so if you want to be thankful, go and do it down those lines. Go and bring my message to the Gentile world, and uh, God's call upon your life will be rather different. But there will be channels down which that gratitude is to be shown, and he says, go do it. Uh, it may be for you simply at home. Uh, it may be uh, running a family. It may be running a business. It may be simply serving in some capacity in one context or other. Whatever it is that God has called you to, those are the channels. He's just eager to be able day by day to give expression to his gratitude to God for all that God has done for him. Uh, I'm kind of rushing through this because I see the time is marching on, but I want to get to this last little heading as well. Um, the third way in which the gospel affects us profoundly, and you see how, how the way that the gospel impacts and touches a man's heart like that, in the case of the Apostle Paul, makes him grateful, fills his life with, with a primary gratitude, and then makes him a guy who is eager, who is enthusiastic, who has that sort of zeal that is, is not bound up just with a kind of personality. Um, uh, disorder or, or or feature but but is a gospel uh, zeal that the Lord uh, effects in us and the third way that he is affected is that he is um, thrilled to use a single word he says in verse 16 I am not ashamed uh, and that's just a a kind of um, way in which in the the language of the Greeks 
you you said the opposite. Uh, I'm not ashamed means you are absolutely chuffed out your skin. It means you are bouncing with delight. You are over the moon on account of, and nothing gives you greater pleasure. Nothing gives you greater pride. Nothing you are more glad to speak about than this. That's what he means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, it, it has had that effect on him. It has just got him bouncing um, constantly. Try keeping the guy down. Um, people did. You just could not keep the guy down. He was just bouncing the whole time uh, out of that sheer delight. Why? The gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God, he says. Now, I want simply to, to spell this out just a little bit and, and show you how this then is going to play into the, the rest of the letter. Um, his being thrilled is in three main regards. Uh, look at the text and you'll see it. First of all, he is thrilled with the heart of the gospel. And uh, I hope as you read the letter to the Romans, you will increasingly be finding that you are thrilled to bits with the very heart of the gospel. Notice how he puts it. The gospel is the power of God. Uh, it's not that the gospel is about the power of God, although that would be wonderful enough in itself. And it is about the power of God. But, but more than that, the gospel is itself the power of God. That's to say, um, the gospel, as it is released, it releases God's power. Um, and, and that's why the devil likes to try and make us tongue-tied, because he knows that even the most stuttering saint, even the most stuttering believer who articulates the gospel in the most uh, uh, stuttering sort of manner, is releasing the power of God. I've sometimes uh, told folk about, um, I think it's Tony Campolo speaks about a camp that he was at um, in America where uh, all the boys in the camp were uh, in their, their own little groups, um, their own little kind of cabins and things like that. And each cabin uh, had the um, the role on a particular morning of of leading the, the morning worship. And this particular cabin full of boys, particularly nasty boys, they um, they got a hold of the one boy called Billy, who was um, in the the language of uh, a bygone days, as uh, Tony Capola puts it, uh, spastic. And he he had a a job being able to to walk up onto the platform, but they they said you do it, Billy. And um, Billy, being an obliging little boy, he he did it, and uh, they just wanted to make a fool of the guy, and he, he kind of stumbled his way up onto the platform and then at the microphone he he got in front of the microphone and in a very very stuttering sort of way he simply says Jesus me and that's all he said and the effect was astonishing the the place was shut down uh in terms of noise you could have a pin drop and and just about everyone there was convicted and for countless 
individuals at that camp, that was the pivotal point in their life. And uh, innumerable boys went on from that camp to be ministers of the word of God. And they would trace it back to that moment when Billy stood up and released the gospel in the most stuttering, faltering way. The gospel is the power of God. It is God who works, God who effects change, and God who effects that change that the Bible speaks of as salvation. The power of God unto salvation. That's what God effects. Now, what that salvation consists in, obviously, is going to expand more fully as he goes on. Uh, but that's the gospel is the power of God, and it does that in people's lives. So Paul is thrilled with the heart of the gospel. Um, and once once that grips you and, and you begin to see that that's what happens, then then you don't hold back. You you release the gospel, share the gospel in the most faltering, stuttering sort of way. But the Lord is pleased to use that. Secondly, he's thrilled with the scope of the gospel. You see how it goes on there. Uh, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone or to everyone who believes first for the jew then for the gentile but it's the scope that he's thrilled by this is not just for a select band of individuals who happen to have a kind of religious background and a religious bent it is for everyone no matter where they come from who they are what baggage they've got it is for everyone who believes uh, he specifies first for the jew um, I think that's uh, both chronological, because as a matter of fact, that's what happened. Uh, it was to the Jews first in Jerusalem, and then it went on out from there. I think it's theologically, uh, he's, he's speaking like that. Um, salvation is from the Jews, so it's rooted in the Old Testament of the, the Jews, the scriptures of the Jews. Jesus put, like, put it like that in chapter 4. And I think probably missiologically as well in terms of the strategy of mission, that's uh, that's the, the strategy that Jesus laid down Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Uh, where do you start in going out with this message to the, the world? Uh, you start in Jerusalem and then you spread out to Judea, that's still the Jews, then to Samaria, that's the Samaritans, and then beyond that to the ends of the earth. And uh, that's what he's talking about. Now he will he will pick up on this in chapter 9, 10, and 11 much more fully to the Jew first, then to the, the Gentile. Um, and so he's flagging this up in advance, uh, but it is for everyone. So, so God's dealings with Jews and Gentiles down through history, he's going to explore that and expand on that, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then um, he's also not just thrilled with the heart of the gospel, not just thrilled with the scope of the gospel, but thrilled with the gift of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is the power of God, unto salvation and we'll be picking up on this when we start in next time but um this is uh, really into verse 17 um the gift of the gospel um is well stated by the prophet habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 4 uh, the verse you remember that uh, was pivotal for martin luther the righteous will live by faith and the way that he will unpack this and expound this uh, and, and many take um, that verse from Habakkuk as being basically his text for the whole letter. But the way that he will expand on this through the course of the letter is um, by recognizing that God's salvation is, um, is first of all, judicial. 
secondly, relational, and thirdly, experiential. That's to say, um, from a judicial point of view, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that righteousness of God has to do, first of all, with the character of God, then to do in the sense that God is righteous, absolutely righteous and holy and good, then to do with the verdict of God. God looks and deals with humanity righteously and thereby righteously condemns humanity on account of our sin and sinfulness. And thirdly, the gospel does not simply speak about the nature and character of God that he's righteous, nor the judgment of God upon our humanity, but the provision of God, the provision of God's righteousness. God has provided for us a righteousness in Jesus Christ. Um, and that's flagged up in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, Isaiah 51, verses 5 to 8. Um, and God, who has promised this, that he will provide that righteousness for us by one of us, namely Jesus in his humanity. Um, that's what he's going to pick up on next. Um, the righteousness of God being revealed, the character of God, his righteousness, the verdict of God, his righteousness in dealing with us thus, and his provision of a righteousness for us. Uh, he'll deal with that in chapter 1, verses 18 through to chapter 3, verse 26. Secondly, Habakkuk's statement, the righteous shall live by faith, um, underlines the essentially relational nature of that salvation. The faith is a trusting the Lord and entrusting of ourselves to the Lord uh, into a relationship with him in which we are bound up and made one with him. It is the, the, the kind of language of marriage, almost the, the union that we have with Jesus Christ. We are relationally made one with him so that what is true of him becomes true of us. And we enjoy that new relationship with him. And Paul will address that in chapter 3, verse 27, to chapter 5, verse 21. And thirdly, uh, what he does as he pecks on this verse, the righteous will live by faith. Speak about the righteousness of God, that's the kind of judicial side of things. Um, the relational side, we're brought into a new relational, we trust ourselves to him. And then the experiential, we live by faith, it's life in its fullness that we come to enjoy. And, and it's that really that he picks up in chapter six through chapter eight, six, seven and eight, and then from chapter 12 to the end of the letter, he's, he's expanding on the new life that we get to live in and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he's just thrilled to bits by that, thrilled with the heart of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation with the scope of the gospel. It's there for everyone and with the gift of the gospel. It is that uh, salvation uh, whereby we are put right with God through the provision that he's made for us, the righteous God making provision for us, brought into a new relationship with him and enabled to live his life now by the power of his spirit. And uh, that brings us to nine o'clock and it brings us to the end of uh, this first section. And uh, uh, please God, um, it will leave you increasingly thankful, increasingly eager and increasingly chuffed out of your skin as well. Let me pray just in closing.
Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for um, the gospel. Thank you for all that you teach us about the gospel, that it is your gospel, uh, about your son, and you bring us into your family. And you wonderfully release that power that effects such a radical change in our whole experience, bringing us into that right relationship with yourself, enabling us to enjoy an ongoing wonderful relationship with your living son, Jesus. And at last to live out by the power of your spirit, a whole new life that takes us to realms we never imagined even existed. And so would you, would you take our studies even this evening, Father, please, and, and just so seal this to our hearts that we shall increasingly find ourselves truly thankful, truly eager, truly thrilled to bits and rejoicing in all that you are and all that you've done and given to us in Jesus. Part us with your peace, grant us your blessing. Thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.